Hello and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the brand new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, May 28th, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano, founder and executive director, and I'm joined by your other host, the amazing Liz Pollack, our vice president. She's back. Hi, Liz. We missed you last week. Thanks, Sam. It's good to be back. Very glad to have you back, especially since this week we're talking about designing hospitals for surge capacity and how medical facilities can be flexible to handle global events like COVID-19. Yeah, this is such an important topic right now. I think both for how we handle COVID-19, but also for the future. Definitely. We have an amazing guest co-host for this topic, Dr. Diana Anderson. She's the docitect, meaning she's both an architect and a doctor. So she's always thinking about the design of our medical facilities and how it interacts with the patient. And so we'll chat with her about that. And then Liz, Diana, and I will interview Dr. Esther Chu, She's an ER doc and a health service researcher based in Portland, Oregon. She's at OHSU there as well. That's the Oregon Health and Science University. And she's a chief medical advisor for a really cool startup called Jupe, which is creating pop-up medical facilities. Plus, as always, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. But first, we've got some news from the Design Museum. Take it away, Liz. Yes, as usual, there's a lot to talk about. We have some really cool virtual events coming up. On June 12th, we have the five growing pains of global innovation. Patricia Wang and Lenka Chekova, two senior researchers from Steelcase's Workplace Futures Group, will talk about strategies to overcome the pain points of collaborating across geographies and cultures. And then on June 26th is the next event in our sketch series. This time we're sketching footwear with Michael DeTullo. This will be a lot of fun. Michael is so great. And a fun fact, he was actually the first board member of Design Museum way back in 2009. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Coming back full circle. Um, and then between these two live events, we have a special Design Museum Everywhere event on June 20th. It's going to be a member-only event where attendees will live curate our next exhibition and get to highlight their favorite examples of impactful design. We will be celebrating design, giving away a ton of incredible prizes, and hearing from designers all over the world about the designs that they can't live without. So anyone who's interested in taking part just needs to become a member, and they will get free access to this incredibly unique interactive event. I know I am personally super excited for this, and I can't wait to see what we create. Yeah, I mean, this is really a dream of mine going all the way back to starting the museum. I had this vision that our collective community could curate exhibitions with us. So it wasn't like we were in this ivory tower deciding like what good design was. And so I think this event is just gonna be a really unique chance for people to participate in that curation and then see the results as we develop this really cool global exhibition on design. So it's definitely something to look forward to. And last thing, the summer issue of Design Museum Magazine is out and it's on its way to our subscribers. Yes, we want to say another thank you to all of our Kickstarter backers who are listed in the magazine and all of our members who are also listed there. This issue means a lot to us because we're bringing Design Museum directly to your doorstep. There are articles about design thinking at NASA, as well as a really cool future-looking article from the Foresight Group at Arup. It's a really well-rounded issue showing the impact of design in, in the world. And if you haven't subscribed yet, be sure to do it. It's only $3 a month and you'll get the summer issue. On to this week's main topic. As cases of COVID-19 spike, hospitals are simply running out of space and beds for people who need them. This is one of the main reasons we've been quarantined. Not just to keep ourselves safe, 
from the virus, but also to flatten the curve, as they say. And it's to help our hospitals keep up with the growing number of cases. Today, we're gonna to talk about how hospitals are designing solutions for surge capacity and what lessons there are for the future of hospital architecture. Those lessons could be very important as we may see new spikes of COVID-19, and we should certainly prepare for these types of worst case scenarios going forward. I really cannot think of a better guest to co-host as we dive into this topic. Diana Anderson is an architect and a doctor, or a docitect. I love that word. Uh, she's a licensed architect and board certified healthcare architect, as well as a licensed internist and board certified physician. She's currently a geriatric medicine fellow at the University of California, San Francisco. As a docitect, Dr. Anderson combines educational and professional experience in both medicine and architecture in order to truly understand what is involved in medical planning and working within the healthcare environment. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sam. Great to be here. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I know you're super busy right now, and uh, we're excited to dive in. So I'd love for you to talk a bit about your professional practice to begin with. You know, combining architecture and healthcare is really interesting. How did you get into this work, and what does it mean to be a docitect? So really, the, the docitect model, or the doctor architect, as I've combined it into one word, it's really a collaborative model, as I see it, for approaching healthcare design from the medicine and architectural fields simultaneously. And really, I see it mostly as a way to push this narrative forward and help disseminate information. Um, I think the hybrid clinician is something we're going to see much more of in the future. There aren't Many people who have done the full architectural training and medicine training, it's quite onerous. And I consider myself almost a professional exam taker and professional student at this point. It's a long road, <laughs> but I don't necessarily think you need to go through all of that training to have the design background to bring into your clinical practice. And many right. clinicians contact me asking for ways they can use design thinking in caring for patients. So I think design is definitely growing as a topic in healthcare. Uh, I want to jump right to, into, you're on the front lines, right? Geriatric care in San Francisco. And it seems like, you know, nursing homes are some of the hardest hit facilities. So can you give us sort of a report on, you know, what it's like, um, you know, both from a patient perspective, but how's the nursing home facility handling COVID-19? So great questions. We're seeing a lot in the media about nursing homes. And it's, I think this whole COVID pandemic has drawn a tremendous amount of attention to nursing homes in terms of their operations and staffing models, but also to the built environments that really have an impact on infection control. And nursing homes are not... Um, you know, they're not strangers to this type of issue. We have lots of outbreaks in nursing homes all the time. C. difficile or some of the other diarrheal illnesses or just upper respiratory, the flu even. And so we're constantly thinking about how can we cohort patients? How can we isolate? How can we um, limit visitors? COVID has pushed it to an extreme level, but I think nursing homes have been relatively equipped to quickly jump into action in this kind of event. I think the hardest part of Nursing homes at this present time is the lack of visitors and the lack of communal meals and the extreme social isolation of the residents. You know, we're going on week 10 of shelter in place here in San Francisco. That's a really long time to not see your oh, spouse yeah. or your loved one, not have meals with anybody else. And I've noticed this impacts people's health, right? Blood sugars are off. People aren't eating as much because you just don't want to eat as much if you're alone in your room versus at a table with your friends. So, you know, people's health is being effective. Um, yeah, the emotional well-being must be oh, 
Emotional and physical. And, you know, we have a lot yeah. of patients with cognitive impairment, different dementias, who are very used to doing a daily routine. And that's so important to them. This idea of, of wandering or purposeful movement, being able to leave your room, go fold the laundry, take a walk in the garden. When you try to prevent people from doing that, who don't understand the reason and try to keep them in their room, we have a whole other set of issues that comes up in terms mm -hmm. of agitation, um, aggression, depression, lots of issues. How do we keep people in one place? And I do think design plays into that. You know, yeah. I think there are probably ways we can design nursing homes differently in the future. And I think we need to. Yeah. Yeah. My grandpa is in a nursing home right now and his routine is to see my dad every day. Mm -hmm. And so that's been taken away. And it is, we are noticing like the, a slip in his memory, right? Like he's starting to say things that he normally wouldn't say. And that's really hard. That's hard to avoid. That is incredibly difficult for him, but also for you as his family. Right. You know, when we care for geriatric patients, we almost care for their families too. They're, they're not just visitors, you know, they're a, a complete part of the care. Yeah. So with your kind of with your architecture, as well as your medical hat on, you know, what are you witnessing in terms of how the healthcare facilities are stacking up against the pandemic? Like, how are they doing? So that's a big question. So let's maybe we can break it down. Certainly, I think if you look at uh, nursing homes or long-term care designs, and you know, I know we're probably going to focus more on acute care and hospitals. But I think we can't forget about the other healthcare facilities like nursing homes and long-term care, assisted living. I think those have been brought to, you know, brought in the public eye in terms of buildings that we either need to retrofit or think about new. And I think as architects, we're talking a lot about. Um, how can we design them going forward, not with the intention to have pandemic preparedness? I don't think we should go into nursing home design saying we're going to design a building for infection control. That's great, but I think you lose something if you if you think in that way. I think we're leaning towards how can we design for a culture of care and how can we design for quality of life? And in doing that, we believe that pandemic preparedness and resilience can follow. So can those things coexist? So I definitely think they can. I think there has to be a balance. I think flexibility is extremely important. I think the nursing home models that I've seen of potentially shared rooms and large open communal dining spaces isn't very conducive to infection control. So I think trying to think about smaller neighborhood type setups, potentially maybe more outdoor space and natural ventilation, probably uh, plans in place to cohort people or to isolate people would be a good idea. Um, I think hospitals, coming back to your original question, as acute care facilities, I think they're more used to quick retrofit if needed. Obviously, the numbers that we're seeing are just exponential, and we never expected to have to retrofit an entire hospital into an ICU. Um, right. So that's quite unusual. But uh, hospitals, no doubt, are probably the, the best sites to quickly convert for different levels of care. Right. Yeah. So I mean, talking about kind of surge capacity, uh, what have been some of the solutions that you've seen to expand existing hospitals that weren't really designed to expand? So the American Institute of Architects, the AIA, actually put together quite early on in the pandemic a task force to address what we called ACS, alternate care sites, trying to provide guidance for those who were looking at different sites within, let's say, a city environment. Um, and we really broke it down. And these weren't mandatory requirements. Um, and I think you'll make a link available, but we developed a checklist that would be a quick tool to say, is this building appropriate, really as a minimum requirement. 
um, we thought about, uh, you know, age of the building, life safety was an important factor, the floor areas, access to power data, bringing in medical gases, pressurization of spaces, but really it comes down to two different categories, right? If you're thinking about a rapid adaptive reuse of existing built environments, you can have either these open spaces, um, such as maybe a sports arena or a community center, but then also the, the sort of room-based structures like hotels or dormitories, which may be more easily convertible because you have that structure in place. And so we provided some guidance for each of those types of alternate care sites through that checklist document that was then picked up by the State Department and hopefully will be useful because I don't think that we really had a document like that before. So in a way, I think the pandemic will push designers and city planners and urban planners to think more about how can we get these documents ready ahead of time so that they're there and ready for people who need to use them. Um, what about pop-up solutions? Have you seen anything that works? So in terms of pop-ups, I've seen quite a few concepts and read about them. I don't know that I've ever seen any in use yet. It's not to say that they can't be extremely useful. I think there needs to be a way that we can um, figure out how to study them and make sure that we understand how they work once they're deployed. There's a number of interesting solutions that I've seen both here in the US, and I think we'll talk about some of that with Dr. Chu, and then also in Canada, some of my Canadian colleagues are developing those. I mean, the shipping container model has been used for years in terms of quick pop-up housing, but that modular unit can easily be converted to a healthcare space. Um, even if you think about things like, like ship uh, hospitals or hospitals on boats, that's another, another option to think about um, having. But I think there's definitely a place for pop-ups. I think you obviously need the land, so it's not a solution everywhere, and that's one caveat. So somewhere like New York City, but then again, Central Park might be a place that you could quickly deploy these modular units. Uh, diving in more to the experience, uh, I was thinking back to you spoke at Design Museum Mornings about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and it was a great talk about the fact that the facility and the design of that space shapes the patient experience. And I think you even said that your thought was, and I think I agree, that that environment and that experience can be just as important you know, to the care that you're getting, right? It's all connected. So how do you think about that in a time when it seems very urgent and it's just all about like, sometimes it can just feel like getting patients in and doing the best you can to get them out. How does the patient experience play into it? Yeah, so that's a good question. And actually thinking back to a lot of the topics I talk about in my lectures, I think that'll have to change a little bit, talking about close proximity of staff and interdisciplinary interaction, touchdown points. You know, we're not gonna be face-to-face -face for potentially a little while, at least going forward. Just to give you a, a flavor of how important design is, in our task force uh, emergency guidance for alternate care sites, we even talked about access to the outdoors, window views if possible, ventilation, considering lighting for patients, uh, maintaining circadian rhythms to prevent acute confusion or delirium from happening and increase wellness. So I think even in this, and you know, as a busy physician, if you're running from, you know, cardiac arrest to cardiac arrest, you're not thinking about that and that's appropriate. But as the designers, we can, I think we can build that right. in. And I think we have to build that into some of these emergency guidelines, right? We can't forget about that experience. Similar to not having visitors, we have to have a way to virtually connect and have that built in. Um, it's not acceptable for somebody to, to die alone without access to their family or, or ability to say goodbye. Um, so I think we have to have that incorporated right. somehow, either into these modular units or field hospital preparedness. 
And I think there's a way to do it. We're very good with technology now. There's lots of options with tablets. I mean, I'd love to get to a place where we could even think about virtual reality, right? Where you could put on a very sick person, put on some goggles and they could be right. in their living room. Their family's all sitting around. They're in 3D. You can't touch them, but it's really realistic. So I wonder if that could be part of some of these emergency centers too. Yeah. So I just love to hear kind of your thoughts on the the future of hospital design, like thinking about, the, you know, 10, 20 years from now, just where we're going. And it seems like flexibility is the name of the game going forward. I just, I'd love to hear about what does that look like? Flexibility for sure. And that comes into play with medical planning. We're always thinking about uh, future flexibility of spaces. You know, we try to build hospitals to last several decades. I think the challenge is with some of these big centers, it takes us a decade to build them. And so what we consider on day one at year number 10, might be obsolete in terms of the technology. So that's why I think it's really important for the hybrid model to come into play and work with clinicians, have designers and clinicians and others work together to, to know what's needed and to understand these changing times. You know, we've seen bed counts drop right over the last few decades, less inpatient beds, maybe more critical care beds. I have some clinical colleagues who think or who had said, you know, there won't be hospitals in 20 years. You know, that's just going to go by the wayside. Maybe there'll be critical care centers, but most care will be at home. Um, some of my geriatric, geriatrics colleagues also think that way and have suggested that maybe the design of the house needs to change. Maybe everybody needs a health room at home, like you have a living room or a oh, bedroom. Wow. That's cool. And then that's the center where you get your care. And that, you know, presuming we have the virtual reality and all that connectedness mm -hmm. technology, telemedicine. telemedicine going. But I, I think... It's hard to tell. I wonder if we're going to have more critical care beds or design, at least design for the capability of converting them. You know, for a while, we talked about the universal room as architects. We thought, wouldn't it be great if every room in the hospital could just convert so that if you were a patient who came out of surgery and went to the ICU, you wouldn't have to then move to an acute care bed when you recovered enough, right? The staff would come to you, but you would stay in the same same place. It's hmm. a little bit like um, LDR, LDRP rooms, labor, delivery, recovery, and postpartum. Often right. all of that happens in one room, but but you can also have labor and delivery and recovery, but then you move somewhere else for your postpartum days. But the challenge was with staffing. So critical care staffing is very different from a nursing model, physician model than acute care. And so how are we going? And that's that I think illustrates how the built environment has to work in tandem with the care models and with the people who right. are working there. Um, you can't the physical environment in the hospital is not just a material backdrop, like a stage set that you create and have the actors come on. You have to be able to have them interplay and intersect with That's each other. That's great. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Listeners, be sure to check out Diana's website for all kinds of great articles and insights at the intersection of architecture and medicine. It's docatech.com, and we'll post it on our show page. Diana, please stay with us. We'd love to have you join our conversation with Dr. Esther Chu. She's also on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19, and she's the chief medical advisor for a really cool startup creating modular pop-up healthcare spaces. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today. 
and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum Magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. And we're back, and we're joined by a special guest, Dr. Esther Chu. Dr. Chu is an emergency medicine physician and health services researcher based in Portland, Oregon. She co-founded Equity Quotient, a company that conducts assessments of healthcare company culture, and was a founding member of Times Up Healthcare, which addresses inequity and sexual harassment in the healthcare industry. She's also the chief medical advisor for Jupe, a startup creating the world's first standalone intensive care unit, which I'm excited to hear more about. And she's one busy doctor. <laughs> she also has her own podcast called Doctor's Log, a COVID-19 journal. It's a twice-weekly report directly from the front lines of COVID-19. Here's a clip. Doctor's Log, April 30th, first thing in the morning. This week, I've felt a little bit of a shift in the mood, both locally and also in medical communities that I'm part of online across the country. It feels like we've hit a little bit of a wall. I think initially we were operating on pure adrenaline. We had this surge of energy that we needed in order to rise to the occasion and address this acute event head on. We were all scrambling to figure out all of the things that needed to go into place so that we could push forward and get things done. Dr. Chu, thanks for joining us, especially during this incredibly busy time. Thanks for having me on. So we're talking about hospital design today, and I wonder if you can kind of give us a view from the ER, right? How are emergency facilities holding up against COVID-19 right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are a lot of different answers to it. I mean, not all of us have been absolutely overrun like the hospitals in New York City, but we all had to be prepared for that. So I think um, in every hospital and health system, there's been a lot of creative thinking around if we do get a surge that push pushes us to crisis level. So, you know, some um, multiplier beyond what we're used to, how are we going to manage those patients? And importantly, how are we gonna do that without jeopardizing the health of the people who are there, both the, the healthcare workers and also patients who are there for non-COVID related reasons. And, um, and I think the important thing to realize is that emergency rooms everywhere at baseline are often pushed beyond capacity. So it's not like we've been sitting around <laughs> with rooms, bored, patients with so much space everywhere, never crowding, waiting for something like this. You know, we've already, uh, you know, it, I've worked in a lot of different really busy trauma centers in major U.S. cities. And all of us at some point during the week don't know where to put patients, you know, and we're putting patients in places where, where no patient would want to be, where your loved one just doesn't belong if they're coming to, to the hospital with a health crisis. Um, I always was bothered. I mean, we, we all are bothered um, all the time when we put patients in a hallway. We're sometimes lined up in a hallway next to other patients and their family members where they have no privacy, where you can't do a full exam with dignity, um, and where it just si simply isn't set up for the kind of care that we want to give. Sometimes there wasn't a lot of involvement of healthcare providers when they built those rooms. I mean, anybody who works at my hospital knows what I mean when I say the dreaded room number 16. It's this room where 
I'm a very small person. And every time I have to walk in, it's this really uncomfortable negotiation of trying to get between the stretcher and the, the computer where I need to open up and put in orders and, um, and write my note. And it's, it's awkward every single time. And every time I walk in and walk out, I think who designed room yeah. number 16? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has, has OHSU had, you know, have they implemented some of these strategies to increase capacity? What have they done? Yeah, we have. And it's been kind of interesting just looking around Portland because people did different things. But in our ER, we did this construction project faster than I actually knew was possible. But we had, um, we built basically a new entrance to the emergency room opposite our usual entrance. And then there was an auditorium that we used for lectures and grand rounds that um, that is just off the hallway to the main ED, it turned out. And, um, and we took over that auditorium and put in new ventilation and kind of retrofitted the space so that you could walk in, get screened for COVID while still being at a distance from other patients. And then there was a new door made so that you could go directly to the radiology suite where you could get your chest x-ray because that's kind of the standard workup for, um, for patients with COVID-related illness and respiratory symptoms, and then go back in without ever uh, walking into actually the regular ED. Right? Other places have used tents uh, or a different way of using parking lot space or, um, or green areas around the hospital to have a quick walkthrough screen so that, so that we could serve the population that needs us without you know, putting ourselves at risk. It's been really interesting to see this explosion of creativity. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that you made the comment about, you know, clinicians not being involved. And that's been a, a big push or change in healthcare architecture, at least over the years, and, and really to advocate to health administrators and those who are doing the capital planning projects to involve clinicians. And by that, I mean, nurses, physicians, anyone using the spaces from the beginning on, because we, we need their input. Um, I'm curious to know about design solutions you've had to consider while working in the COVID pandemic. You mentioned the retrofit of the auditorium, but some of my clinician colleagues in New York City said they were even doing things like cutting vision panels into solid doors because on acute care floors, they're solid. We don't need to make a, a pass-through viewing window. We have that in the ICU. But were there little things in your ED that you had to retrofit thinking back or, or still thinking about it now because we're still in it? So in our ED, I was involved in a conversation about how we give patients privacy and dignity, but take away these curtains that we had um, uh, that really are just, uh, they're just places to seed infection, you know, because it's not like we take down the curtain and wash it between patients. There was a place where people could touch, they could infect it, and then the next person could come in. So clearly we had to get rid of these curtains. So what we had is we have a glass door that's, um, you know, that you can see through, and then a curtain that provided the privacy layer. We took away the curtains, um, and then we ended up frosting the glass, but leaving this little window so that people at eye level could peek in and communicate with the patient or with a care provider in the room. And then the other issue that came up, and it, similar to so many things during COVID where I just had simply never thought about it, in order to reduce infection of our radiology workers in, uh, um, and, uh, and, and avoid having patients travel to the radiology suite where they, you know, where they would then have to decontaminate the room after they were in it, we started having radiology come to us more often. So the x-ray techs would roll up this big x-ray machine. They would pass in the plate to the nurses um, who would bring the bed closer to the door, sit the patient oh, wow. up, put the plate behind, and the x-ray machine is on the outside and they shoot through the through the door. And I mean, it, it created all these really interesting conversations about, can you shoot an x-ray through a window? How thick can that window be? What happens when 
across the glass. Can you still shoot through that, or does that um, does that change the quality of the picture anyway? Anyway, and will it make it kind of fuzzier or you know less accurate? It turns out uh, these X-ray machines uh, actually capture with no degradation in quality. It's kind of a classic COVID era design conundrum that worked out. I also think it gives us more. Um sort of power to say design up front when we're thinking about new facilities or renovating. So things like you're mentioning, the, the glass and the curtains, we've been on this crusade in North America to try to push hospitals to employ e-glass or electrostatic glass in a lot of places, which is a you know piece of glass or a glass doorway that when you flick a switch, the charges align and you get an opacity or you can un you know, turn the switch off and it goes yes. clear. There's some of these, you know, you see these things in fancy nightclub bathrooms in Europe sometimes, and it's pretty cool. But a lot of hospitals outside North America are doing that for both exterior windows and within the ED and ICU. Totally. And touchless everything, you know, touchless lights, touchless water faucets, um, everything we touch. I feel like I, you know, I take a disinfecting wipe and I wipe it down before I leave the room. And just like, you know, just those minutes sometimes in a really busy shift feel like, man, I wish I didn't have to touch that thing. Yeah. I mean, even what you were just talking about with like having to wipe everything down and all that time, you know, I'm just, I, I kind of want to circle back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier, just like talking about the healthcare workers themselves. And, you know, there, we were saying like, there are stories of people sleeping in their cars, like nurses and doctors, and it just seems like hospital design needs to kind of take this into account and like, you know, what's the future of, of that. Even for a, a huge hospital, so you think about just these really big urban hospitals that look like there must be a million doctors there sleeping overnight. It's it's not true. It's actually just a few rooms that are equipped for that. Very few showers because who's showering? You're not actually expecting your workforce to shower while it's there. Then all of a sudden something like this comes along and you your workforce doesn't want to go home because they're endangering their families. And, um, and there's actually no pop-off valve for that. Where are they supposed to go? So in some places like New York City, you know, entire hotels gave themselves over for healthcare workers who could not go home because they're worried that they would um, transmit infection to their family members, to their kids, to elderly family members at home. That's great if you're in New York City and the Four Seasons happens to be right, down right the there by your hospital <laughs> and, um, and you, uh, you know, um, and is willing to, to just turn over their facility for you for an extended period of time. And I think that sort of came together in this really wonderful way, but that's not a reality in most places. I would love to talk about Jupe and Jupe Health. Uh, seems like such a cool concept. Yeah, so just maybe give us the overview of what it is. Yeah, so uh, Jupe Health is a company that um, came together as a group of people from very different backgrounds. Um, I think the refreshing thing was we weren't just building healthcare units. We were also thinking about flexible housing for the huge population of people who are who have no place to go in this era. So, I mean, that is healthcare workers, like I mentioned, but it's also anybody living in group settings um, where going back with a potential diagnosis of COVID um, was not a possibility. So you think about people living in homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, um, you know, uh, group homes, psychiatric units, uh, nursing homes, uh, uh, correctional facilities. I mean, those are all places where uh, one person with COVID is a danger to the entire facility, sometimes hundreds or thousands of people. So what are ways that we can provide quick housing that can be, you know, moved around the country as, uh, as the surge hits different places at different times and be compassionate, safe, housing that's easy to disinfect, um, that can be used flexibly for that healthcare worker who can't go home, but also can be used for basic 
isolated housing for people who live in the community in settings where it's either being on the street um, or um, or it's it's having something like this can, that can be dignified and clean um, and safe. Yeah. So these, from what I could tell, so we have like these, you have these modules that are, I won't call them flat packed because that's maybe. No, I like that. Let's say flat packed. There's a lot. Yeah. Let's say flat packed, like architecturally flat packed. <laughs> and then they can, they're on a truck and they can be shipped, like you said, to a needed area and then pop up. Um, how does that look? I can get it from like a housing perspective because you're kind of, you know, creating a volume of space. But as we were talking with, uh, Diana about, you know, there's gas, there's all kinds of um, needs for an ICU. So how does that get kind of flat packed and hooked up uh, when something is uh, popped up? Yeah, that's a good question. We're in prototype stage, so I don't really know the answer to that, but that's part of the trick of figuring out um, how can you um, be true to the idea of being able to really rapidly you know, deliver a whole bunch of units at low cost, but also, um, but also have in it everything that you need for complicated facilities. And that's why something like an intensive care unit where you need oxygen piped in, you need all kinds of like setup for, you know, certain types of ventilation and filtered air and, and all those things um, will be our last product. Can these be deployed in open space, let's say a sort of field or someone's backyard, or do they need to be within an existing built environment like an arena, or can they be both? We were really thinking of them as, a, as, as existing in open places and being standalone as much as possible, because that's the reality of this situation. You know, So um, I mean, I'm sure they could be used in arenas and things like that, but our first thought was um, what what does everybody have? They have a parking lot. You're definitely a hybrid of sorts. You have lots of different skill sets in addition to medicine. You're writing, you're speaking, you're doing podcasts. Do you think that you would have um, wanted to have at least maybe a course for a medical school that touched on design thinking? Would you have wanted to know how to read a floor plan going into this? Do you think there's value to clinicians having some kind of design knowledge? Um, whether not necessarily architectural design, but design in general. Yeah, I feel like if that was, say, an elective in medical school or part of a health systems course, I feel like all of us would relate to it. I think I thought, too, that you had to have the identity of a design person in order to really fit in that space. And what I'm learning through Jupe Health is actually everybody has a place in there, um, even if they yes. don't consider Absolutely. themselves a design piece. But that's you know, that's something I had to come to. And I, um, I think just had to get over those barriers that you put up about needing to be like really artistic or have a certain background. It's, you know, I'm trying to um, get over the imposter syndrome about not belonging there, you know, when it comes Mm -hmm. to conversations about the healthcare space that I work in. So well said. I mean, design really does impact everybody. Like, 100%. 100%. Let room 16 um, be the lesson, yeah. you know? Room 16. Never again. I love it. Never again should that happen because right. we should all be engaged in the conversation so that really upstream we're like, look at room 16. That's not going to work for any of us, you know? Right. Right. Oh, God. And I mean, one thing, I'm sorry, I'm so fixated on room 16, but one thing about room 16 is I, I took care of a disabled person in that room in their wheelchair. I mean, the way we had to wedge the wheelchair and just kept on banging it against the side of the room for, you know, for part of our patient population whose voice almost never gets incorporated into design. And so I felt like it was, it basically signaled, we don't care about your needs in this hospital. So I I do have one last question for both of you, actually. Um, And maybe we'll start with with Esther on this one. Um, But what are we learning from this crisis about hospital design? 
and how can clinicians and designers utilize this crisis to inform the hospital design kind of of the future? Well, I feel like we've spent so little time, uh, at least from my view, again, as a person who's been outside design, I, I wonder how much time we spend thinking about what ifs, you know, all these kind of the extremes. I think reasonably we probably spend our time in the you know, in the middle of the curve of possibility. And I think this has really forced us to think, okay, we could very reasonably be in an outlier in terms of a health crisis. And let's spend a little more at least mental time uh, talking about these outlier situations and making sure that we can flex into them at least for the immediate time period. So I think, you know, I, I talk a lot about, and I think it applies here too, is this, this design pendulum. Pendulum has really swung for patients, you know, putting patients first, transforming the patient experience are always quotes and sayings we hear. Um, I think it's swung away from designing for clinicians. And I think what this pandemic has really brought us back to is some sort of health design equity. We need to be able to have spaces that are used by anyone and everyone, the staff who work there, the clinicians and the patients and their families and not really prioritize one or the other. And I think, you know, in terms of designers and clinicians working together, to, to comment on something Esther said, you know, sometimes you're too busy to go to see that design presentation that's happening because you're obviously caring for patients. We have a lot of difficulty getting clinicians to come to our design meetings. We want to hear their voices. We're really interested, but there's such a gap that, does, that prevents it. And so I wonder, can we figure out ways going forward to incorporate those voices? And I really love the idea of engaging everybody too. I mean, I was spending some time talking with our environmental services ladies who all have incredible biceps and triceps. So this is what we're, they're doing during COVID-19. They're going into a room where there's been a patient with suspected of COVID-19, a suspected or established COVID-19, and they are mopping the walls with a disinfectant. Wow. It never occurred to me that there is a human mopping a wall every single time we take out a COVID-19 patient. And, and isn't there something that we can do so that an individual doesn't need to mop a wall and you can still disinfect it? Can you use right. UV light or have some automated thing or have a machine that sprays up that high or something? And I was like, my God, yeah. these oh my mostly women, you know, mostly women of color doing that kind of labor. Um, there are, there are a lot of health equity issues here. And so I think, um, you know, incorporating the voices of people who don't normally hop on a Zoom, you know, as part of their day-to-day mm -hmm. -day work um, and have their time protected by unions so they can't always, you know, join uh, optional meetings like this and contribute their time would be so important. We'll take a little extra work, but we'll make such a difference. Yeah, so many voices to include it. It's really important. We're all in it together. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Chu. This was really great. Thanks so much for including me. It's been a pleasure being on. Listeners, be sure to check out Esther's new podcast, Doctor's Log, a COVID-19 journal. We'll post a link on our show page, and you can learn more about Jupe at jupe.com. Now for our weekly dose of good design, where we share an example of good design that impacted us or others in a meaningful way. Liz, you're back. Why don't you go first? All right, happy to. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I took last week off in an effort to kind of regroup with everything that's going on. Uh, so I didn't do much, but I did make a point to take our kids for a walk every day. 
And one day we went to Far and Near, which is this beautiful conservation area um, really close to our house. And in the middle of it is this stunning open air pavilion. uh, And it's designed by Design Lab Architects. And, you know, not only was it beautiful to look at, but it served so many functions. You know, it had... um, it kind of felt like an outdoor classroom for our kids. It had a map on the floor and rainwater collection system off the side and exposed structure so that you could see, you know, exactly how it was built. And it had this kind of learning wall um, so you could learn about, you know, the plants and the animals on the property. And, you know, in a time that we aren't going into any buildings, I mean, other than the grocery store, I guess, uh, it was just such a treat to safely visit this kind of local outdoor structure. And it just really made me appreciate the power of design, even if it's in the middle of the woods. So That sounds so cool. I'll have to go check that out. I will go next. So my weekly dose of good design comes from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And it's from the world of Star Wars, uh, specifically the Disney Plus show, The Mandalorian. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, but if you haven't, it's pretty amazing. And it basically feels like you're watching a movie while you're watching this show. And right, it's really difficult for TV shows to have like that level of production quality, like, you know, visual effects and shooting locations. And I remember watching it and being like, how are they getting these amazing shots? Like they're in the desert and then they're on like an alien planet. And you know, I just kind of chalked it up to, oh, they must be like using tons of green screen. Well, I learned about how they actually did this and it's just blew my mind. And so they didn't use green screen. You can imagine the actors, it's really hard to like get into your character when you're just surrounded by this like giant field of green. So for The Mandalorian, uh, Disney and Industrial Light and Magic built a 20 foot tall, 75 foot across, and it's like 270 degrees in the round, right? So almost a full 360. And they call it the volume. And I'll post a video because you have to see this, but basically in real time, they can load any environment. It could be an exterior landscape. It could be the interior of a building. It could be spaceships, anything. And it's, so it's big enough to take up your full vision and the actors. And so they really feel like they're in this environment and the director can change the background at any time. They're literally filming the actor and the digital projection in real time. There's no like post-processing or anything. So they don't have to travel to the desert. They don't have to add in crazy effects after the fact. It's like a real time thing. So check out the video on our show page and enjoy. All right, so last but not least, Diana, please share your weekly dose of good design. Yeah, I wonder if we could take some of those lessons from film and even have, you know, imagine being a patient and being able to control the environment you're in. Exactly. In a hospital would be sort of groundbreaking. So my weekly dose of good design is going to come back to our topic of COVID and emergency preparedness of buildings. I've been pretty immersed in that. So that's all I got. But um, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to my colleague up in Canada, in Toronto, a fellow architect, and his name is Ty Farrow. And you can check out his website, but he's developed a, a modular type of ICU pop-up for Canada. Uh, it's called Solus. But what I thought was interesting is Ty has really um, shifted from being reactionary, as we all are, in medicine and design and thinking about preventing or treating illness or um, you know, preventing disease. And he has come up with this slogan, and he calls it Cause Health. 
So whatever you're doing in design, make sure it causes health. And it's just a new way for me to think about how I work both as a doctor and an architect, right? Everything I do shouldn't necessarily be um, reactionary. I should proactively think and say, how can I actually cause something good and not just prevent something bad? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good, good concept indeed. Thank you again to Dr. Anderson and Dr. Chu for joining us this week. You'll find links on our show page to some of the resources we talked about today. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org. While you're there, be sure to grab tickets to any of our upcoming Design Museum Live events. We have some really cool ones coming up about global innovation, data visualization, and sketching. Yes, and be sure to subscribe to Design Museum Magazine so you can get our summer issue and become a member or refer a friend if you're already a member so you get to come to our special event on June 20th. It's going to be an incredibly unique night as we collectively curate our next exhibition live on air. That's going to be so fun. I can't wait. We can continue the conversation online. Like us, follow us on Twitter. We're at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching Design Museum Everywhere. And remember to subscribe to Design is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate us. You could also leave us a review that really helps people find the new show. Yes, it sure does. This episode was written and edited by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollock and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone.